The Evils of Abdelmajid. Asterisk This piece was originally written July 5th, 2017, and published on UCID blog. This week Liz Thompson earned her journalist dollar writing for Nine News on a poll undertaken on Facebook by Seven News Australia, which apparently attracted 17, 500 votes when it asked do you support her, Yasmin Abdel, Majid, decision to move to London, or do you think she should stay and face her critics? The Facebook page later retorted 85% said yes and 15% said no. Unfortunately, due to the unclear manner in which the question was asked, I am no further ahead on how 17, 500 Australians feel about Abdelmajid. Let me try to wrap my head around it. That's 85% who agreed she should move to London or face her critics. Or 15% who don't agree she should move to London or face her critics. It seems to me, either way, people would have agreed and disagreed with both, and, perhaps that was the point, obfuscate or divide or both. I don't think it is accurate to state that Abdelmajid has not been facing her critics, as a recent event at ANU made clear when she got into an embroiled debate with ANU Chancellor and former Labour Foreign Minister Gareth Evans. But for Thompson, who appeared to be oblivious to the confusion of the way in which the poll was shaped, the issue seems to be allowing or supporting Abdelmajid to have a voice and providing a platform for her worldview to be received. An important contribution but one which unfortunately falls short of making the matter any clearer or contributing to a worthy debate on why Abdelmajid felt in order to be herself, she had to conform to the tirade of abuse or leave the country. First and foremost, in the interest of not repeating much of the same, let's provide some clarity in the public imaginary on a few issues which have been heightened by the latest pseudo-pop rundown of what it means to be Australian, how democracy should function in a country like Australia versus how it is in reality functioning, and social media as a tool for ascertaining public truth and democratic representation. Social media. In 2012, long after the Obama campaign dexterously utilized social media platforms to cultivate mass support for his Yes, We Can campaign, Jericho wrote a book on the rise of social media and what he termed the fifth estate. He noted that although social media had been a political force, the reality of most of its users in politics and media essentially sought to expand their own brand. Pay attention here, we will discuss what brand Australian media is expanding when we discuss the role of the media in shaping opinions towards people of colour. By contrast, unlike the fourth estate, the state of pre-social media news and politics, social media gave voice to the masses, but not power to reshape their own destiny. That said the continuum of power as a player, ever so silent, reinforces and reaffirms its own structural paradigms. Late last year I wrote a paper on the role of Google in reinforcing racist stereotypes of black men made visible by a never-ending character assassination on Kanye West some seven years after the 2009 VMA. The research showed that Kanye West was profiled by media outlets in accordance to racist perceptions of black men, perceptions that led to the over-imprisonment, lack of justice, and most tragically the murder of young black men, as was the case with Trayvon Martin. It further noted that despite the longevity of space and time since the event, which included a formal reconciliation between both West and the artist Taylor Swift, it continued dominating Google not only were they regurgitating these racist stereotypes, they were educating masses in them without considered context. This is just one example, and there are many. 
The hollowing out of the news, which we define as matters of social, economic, and political importance has important implications for democracy. As substance is replaced with branding, and slogans replace deep intellectual consideration of public circumstances, social constructions, and notions of cultural diffusion, the balance of power is premised on false public security. Power is able to entertain a form of invisibility amidst mass confusion. Real issues are sidetracked, and publics hedonistically engaged as informed publics often serving their own prejudices and limitations. In the case of Yasmin Abdel-Majid, despite the obvious, which is that there is no guarantee that social media representations in the poll are actually individual citizens expressing their views with all the responsibility of citizenship, the distorted perception made available to publics through the online posting of the poll, as noted in research on West and Google, actually re-educates populations to submit to imbalanced power dynamics and bring about unjust outcomes. This is mostly made evident by the fact that 17, 500 people are said to have participated, without questioning the question put forward by 7 News Australia, and was largely uncontested because as noted earlier in this section, what appears to be a large mass is actually the usual suspects expanding their own brand. Free speech Free speech has been a tumultuous issue in Australia. Who is privileged with it, and who isn't again reflects power, and how it operates. For Abdelmajid, the obvious correlation to recently deceased cartoonist Bill Leake's racist depiction of indigenous men in the Australian was drawn. Publics argued why should Abdelmajid be able to make such an inappropriate comment on Anzac Day on Facebook remembering the refugees and Palestinians who suffered under tyrannical regimes rather than acknowledge those who fought in Gallipoli for the freedom of Australians. Leake and Bolt, for that matter, were subject to mass scrutiny and even forced to apologize in the case of Bolt, under the Racial Discrimination ACT subsection 18C, even though subsection 18D of the Racial Discrimination Act allowed for was such a comment to be contributed to public discourse on policymaking. The legislation was prompted in accordance with mass debate to pass Parliament changing words of the Racial Discrimination Act from humiliate to offend. These suggestions were put forward by President of Australia's Human Rights Commission Gillian Triggs. The suggested changes failed to pass Senate. What has not been acknowledged adequately in the debate was a history of racial supremacy and privilege that allowed some people to exploit legislation in the interest of sustaining privilege and regurgitating notions of racial supremacy systemically embedded in the country's architecture that historically excluded others. Indeed, throughout Australia's history, embedded in the White Australia Policy of Immigration Restriction Act of 1901 and Assimilation Act of the 1930s omitted the humanity of many citizens on the basis of race. It reaffirmed structural privilege in areas of economics, politics, and education as a right for those who were of white or of British ancestry. This summation is, of course, a generalization. Women were largely excluded from many rights as well and white was a shifting construct over time. Jane Haggis wrote on the matter of whiteness competing in Moreton Robinson's Widening Race, Essays in Social and Cultural Criticism, observing in rural Australia a conversation between white women denouncing one of the women's daughters who is in a relationship with an Aboriginal man. The act is thought of as unsavoury by the mother in question then, once the said mother leaves the conversation. The conversation is continued by two other women at the table over cups of tea. One of the conversationalists, 
A lady from Germany noted in her absence, she doesn't realize it, but where I'm from, she's black. This construct served to allow dignity to those who fit the racial cleanliness of uncontaminated whiteness. In essence, it preserved power in the notion of whiteness and structurally reaffirmed legislation that operated to exclude and punish others. Free speech, it is thought is at the heart of civilized democracies. It contests the silencing of those without power to contest power and challenge assumptions socially engineered in public institutions and is most commonly structurally present in nation-states through a charter or bill of rights. However, it is also a constricting legal framework which silences not only those with power, but those without. Ali noted two years ago in a talk to the Cotton Center for Human Rights Law, the debate on absolute free speech is something of a misnomer. Nowhere in any human history has there ever existed absolute free speech. The problem is the way in which the law determines who can speak freely, who cannot, and the law is a social construct with legal ramifications, which again privileges those who are protected and benefited by it. In a country like Australia, in the age of mass hysteria, which demonizes Muslims and all others who are opposed to the status quo, Yasmin Abdelmajid is not one of those people. Media and People of Color According to the Routledge Companion to Media and Race 2017, the white racial frame is a media frame used to shape narratives of how black people or people of color are inadequate according to social and economic structures which, of course, benefit themselves. In it, under the chapter framing Frank J. Ortega and Joe R. Fegan ask, Who benefits from this arrangement? Who owns the most influential mass media? Media ownership, particularly of television and radio companies, is largely in the hands of elite white men. The white racial frame is part of the racial oppression that is foundational and systemic. Evaluating it is necessary to fully explaining the continuing societal dominance of whites, of white power and privilege. Thompson's article on Abdul Majid quoted Liam O'Reilly in noting FFS7 News stop perpetuating hate for clicks. What is interesting and not sufficiently analyzed by Thompson is the framing used to perpetuate hate for clicks. The media are rewarded substantially through race baiting. People of color are socially constructed to play into the hands of racists and media outlets alike, not only because it is a system that has so judiciously served to enhance the benefits of enslaving people of color through various economic prisms, see 13th by Ava DuVernay a documentary that extensively delivers on the nexus of legislation, race, slavery, and capitalism, and limiting their choices, but also because it enables the invisibility of whiteness to masquerade as normative. Entitled and deserving in social, economic, political, and cultural hierarchies. As Islam and the Middle East become an international symbol of human rights abuses, Western democracies internalized such narratives as a form of colonialism without colonizers. People of color in the media like Abdelmajid are allowed to exist as one of the good guys as long as they don't contest these normatives, but instead reinforce them. The opening remark in Said's Orientalism makes this clear in a quote by Karl Marx which states they cannot represent themselves, they must be represented, for the conflict Said continues, is one which limits their, those others those orients, capacity to own their own views without limits, and the right of the West to shape and translate who they are. Abdelmaji being both a woman of color and a Muslim surely is subjected to these contexts, which predesigned over hundreds of years both punish her and own her.
Limit her so she does not creep into a space preserved for the non-other, or white, who reserve the right to do so through prisms of power. What's more, Abdelmajid comments not only differed from accepted norms when she contested Anzac Day by making the public aware that in spite of their freedoms coming at the price of those who had died, Australians were now undertaking and supporting tyranny through legislation and turning a blind eye to their own behavior in the name of democracy. For this Abdelmajid paid a price. According to Thompson's article, influential public persons argued that she should live in an Arab country rather than Australia, who has a long history of defining itself by normatives it constructed in the image of whiteness. Yasmin Abdelmajid was bullied by media and their publics to the point of renouncing citizenship in a democracy. And in a misguided effort to give her a voice Thompson was clear to label her as traumatized, please note quote marks, adding to misconceptions which frame women of color and Muslims, who are citizens, as untrustworthy in the name of expanding the normative brand of whiteness. It is little wonder that the ABC pulled her contract. Democracy Democracies have long held themselves as the salvation of humanity. Deeply embedded in the West as a franchise, and sprouted by the gun, or religion, it has served to govern the world we live. From Adam Smith's free trade to Rousseau's social contract and Locke's two treatise of government, Athenian demos crates is the glue that binds Western nations together and is founded, in theory at least, on principles of fairness, equality, and reason. They have argued themselves champions of human rights, promoted egalitarianism, and semantics, all of which have been defined by power relations and powerful economic interests primarily situated in whiteness. And yet there remains a question as to why democracy is failing. The answer is somewhat obvious. Exclusionary practices have allowed a form of fascism to creep into the seeping wounds of democracy's violent and racist history. To infer the American constitution we the people has held a long bitter contestation of who can be defined as the we and how they may be addressed or represented in the political systems which govern us. Perhaps the best example was the rise of TV personality and billionaire Donald Trump to the highest office in one of the most powerful countries on the planet. Despite losing votes by an estimated 3 million people, a mechanism called the Electoral College designed through slavery to benefit slaveholders in the South, counting African-American slaves as four-fifths of a person, enabled one of the most incompetent candidates ever to run for election to become president because he was white. But this disconnect between the proposed fantasy of democracy and the reality is still boasted by those in positions of power. An article, this time published in the Herald Sun and written by that famous Democratic Ian Andrew Bolt, attacked Abdelmajid over her comments on democracy. To make his point that Abdelmajid was incorrect in her summation, that democracy is skewed to benefit a racial hierarchy, he misleading posted the maiden speech of Senator Lucy Gichuhi who noted in her maiden speech that she was the first ever African woman to be elected to Senate. For the record, Africans and their descendants have been in Australia since the first fleet, they just haven't been included in the expectation of citizenry due to the fact that they are not white. Nor have they held political or economic power to discern their futures. There are many examples which can be prompted to deconstruct the fallacies of democracy in Australia and elsewhere, false notions of secularism and prayers in parliament, docility, and investment in hostile public relations by sustaining the haves and have-nots concentrated though the poor redistribution of wealth and power, the obvious gender divide, the lack of a treaty in Australia, 
and the continuity of exclusion of indigenous rights through the prism of colonialism in countries where there are treaties, the notion of majority rule, or the refusal of gay marriage, but perhaps the best example is written in the history of South Africa's apartheid system. Banned to Steve Biko, who himself strove for democracy made the succinct point nothing can justify the arrogant assumption that a clique of foreigners has the right to decide on the lives of a majority. Such a comment rightly reflects Abdelmajid's concerns on electoral integrity. Australia has a migrant population of 6.9 million people born overseas. Further, a recent demography report showed that only 47% of the Australian population are white, yet they disproportionately represent over 87% of parliamentary seats. The analogy between Australian democracy and apartheid South Africa should be clear a small clique of foreigners are ruling over a colored majority. This prompts a question, what is the point of a representative democracy if the experiences of so many groups in our society are not represented? But the most important comment Abdelmajid has made on democracy can be traced back to her Facebook page, where she noted on that fateful Anzac Day 2017 lest we forget, Manus, Nauru, Syria, Palestine. Fukuyama in 2006 writing on identity politics and liberal democracy argued the threat of the rise of extremism is the result of pitting the state against individuals who it has deemed a threat to collective interest. His paper drew upon identity politics to make a clear point that in the age of equality for all those groups who have been excluded and oppressed are reshaping their space in liberal democracies to reflect something of self and the other in the interests of adopting and being present in the social contract. Abumajid sees her herself in those groups oppressed, in those asylum seekers locked away in extra-penological island in the name of democracy, freedom, and free market. She sees her experience as an other as relative to the human rights of all, and in doing so she championing democracy, making the hollowed-out carcass of what once held the aspirations of great freedom fighters like Baiko fill its empty center with substance. And unlike Liz Thompson and Andrew Bolt, she is anchoring it on important issues. Asterisk please see Liz Thompson article HTTP.